May the words of my mouth and meditation of all of our hearts be always acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. Just a, a moment of personal privilege, if you will. Um, many of you know that my mother passed away this week, and you've written and um, texted and called and have been amazing. I can't tell you how grateful I am. Um, I'm here today because... I need to work, <laughs> and I need to get my mind in another place. And so I'm sure you understand that. It has nothing to do with um, lack of interest in my family or um, grieving together with them, but uh, we've, been, we've been through a tough week, and um, I just needed to get away. And so with that, here are these words that were written by William Tyndale. He wrote this in about the year 1530 in a little track, and he says... Let it not make thee despair, neither yet discourage thee, O reader, that it is forbidden thee in pain of life and goods, or that it is made breaking of the king's peace, or treason unto his highness, to read the word of thy soul's health. He means the Bible. For if God be on our side, what matter maketh it be who is against us, be they bishops, cardinals, or popes? William Tyndale was a brilliant man. He could speak seven languages. He was a priest, uh, a a Catholic priest in England. Um, He also, in addition to the seven languages he could speak, he had mastered ancient Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek. And um, he, with his intellect and piety, was on a track to become, you know, a bishop himself, perhaps, or even perhaps the, the Archbishop of Canterbury. But instead of this ecclesiastical ladder climbing, he had this one burning desire in his heart. He wanted to translate the ancient text of Scripture into English because no one in the realm of England, not even many of the clergy, could read the Bible in its ancient languages, and there was no English Bible available. And so he wanted to do that. He wanted to translate scriptures into English. So being a faithful priest, he wrote to his bishop and asked for permission. He also asked for funding. That's what we do. (laughs) Could you give me uh, permission and some money for this project? Assure that his bishop would would share his, his concern. The bishop wrote back immediately, cease and desist. Do not do this. The Bible was far too holy to be in the vernacular of the people. It's entrusted only to those who could properly read it and understand it. Tyndale thought this was nonsense, so he wrote to other bishops. Oh, maybe I can find another bishop to get on board. This is also what we do. Um, and he had no luck. Nobody would, would um, fund his project. So he left England for the continent, traveled to what we would call Germany, um, went through cities like Hamburg and Wittenberg and eventually into Worms. And it's in the Lutheran city of Worms that he found people who would support him, and he translated the New Testament for the first time from Greek into English. The, the, copies, uh, the, the, the translation was then quickly copied. Many copies were made, and um, it was smuggled back into England. Suddenly, Tyndale's New Testament became prolific throughout the land of England and eventually wound up on the desk of King Henry VIII. Henry and his, um, his counselors were furious. Uh, here's what Sir Thomas More said of Tyndale's New Testament. It is not worthy to be called Christ's Testament, but either Tyndale's own testament or the testament of his master, Antichrist. (laughs) I guess they didn't like it. Um, A bounty was placed on William Tyndale's head, and a man named Henry Phillips, who was much in debt from gambling, befriended William Tyndale only to betray him and sell him out. Tyndale was arrested, and he was tried for heresy. He was given a chance to renounce his work as evil, 
And when he refused, he was taken to the city square in Habsburg in the Netherlands. He was tied to a stake and he was strangled to death. And after he was strangled to death, they burnt his body, I guess to make doubly sure that he was dead. He was killed at the stake. His final words, O Lord, open the eyes of the king. He gave his life, his very breath, because he believed that if men and women could read the Bible in their own language, they would love God more fully and be more devoted to the cause of Christ. I wish I was that brave. I don't know about you. I wish I had that kind of courage. I'm rebellious. I could hear me saying, Bill, go with it, buddy. Don't listen to the king. Don't worry about him. Do what you got in your heart to do. I could hear me saying that. I worry that I wouldn't have the courage to follow through. Because here's the truth. I'm afraid of bats. You know those little rodents that fly around in the sky? I'm terrified of them. I'm also afraid of squirrels. And I know that sounds ridiculous, but it's true. Um, you know, I like to run. I, I run through the neighborhood all the time. You know, so here it is. You know, and you know how when you walk out the door and there's a squirrel in the yard and he runs away from you like he just saw an axe murderer? They don't do that with me. Um, squirrels in my neighborhood laugh when I come around the corner. You know, they gang up in little groups and they point at me and dare me to come their way. And I cross the street and I go the other way. And I maybe told you this story about bats. One time um, when my oldest son was in the first grade, uh, we went on a, um, on a field trip to Carter Caves. And I, was, I volunteered to be one of the chaperones. I didn't know, like in Kentucky... Um, that men were, this really wasn't permissible. You know, to be a dad chaperone on a field trip, you know, all the moms looked at me with great suspicion, like I was wearing lipstick or something. I totally had crossed some gender barrier. But, you know, I'm comfortable in my masculinity. I'm like, that's fine, whatever. Think what you want about me. You know, I'm going to hang out. And, and so here we are, all these little first graders, all the moms, all the teachers, and me. Um, and we're going through the cave, and we go into this one rather large cave, and, and up on the ceiling, it was moving, you know. All these bats are up there. And the tour guide says to us, don't worry, they're hibernating. They've been asleep for a couple weeks, you know, and, and they're sound asleep. Um, sure they are. One of them forgot his CPAP machine, and he drops from the ceiling and begins to fly around. And I took cover, you know, on the floor, the ground. And nobody else did. None of the teachers, none of the moms, None of the first graders. Just me. I was safe. I always wonder if I would have the courage to be a William Tyndale. Could I dare to defy the king? And given a chance, my life is on the line. Just renounce your work as evil and you can live. And to say, no, it's not evil. I have done one brave thing in my life. Well, two. I became a father. The second brave thing that I did was become a priest. Um, it is quite a courageous act. James chapter 3, verse 1. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that a teacher will be judged with greater strictness. Not many of you should become teachers. Why? Because you will be judged more strictly. A, a strict evaluation a powerful microscope. And who will do the judging? God Almighty. He will be our judge. 
I remember when I was in my um, second year of seminary in a preaching class, my professor, who was a rather curmudgeonly fellow, came in one day and he says, begins his, his class with this. How many of you here have felt the call to be a, a, a parish priest, a pastor? You want to teach the word of God Sunday after Sunday to people and everybody. You know, it's the only reason we're there. We're not there for any other reason. We all raise our hands. And he said, congratulations, you just cut your chance of going to heaven in half. Now let's begin with the lesson for the day. James has seen the power of good teaching. James has followed the Lord Jesus around. Some dispute. Some people say that James is an actual brother of Jesus, a child of, of Mary and Joseph. Others say that James is a cousin of Jesus. That's immaterial. He has known him his entire life. He has followed him around. He was one of the group of disciples. He has seen Jesus teach. He has seen what good teaching can do. And he has seen what bad teaching. He has seen charlatans out there. He has seen the people who, who are uh, out for their own self-interest. And he writes to say, be careful. Be careful about becoming a teacher. Be careful because you're going to be judged not just on how you live, but on the very content of what you say. I'm like a, I'm like a broken clock. I know I'm right twice a day. But that's about it. After that, things are really sketchy, you know. And, and be careful about the content of what you say. Verse 2, for we all stumble in many ways. And if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he's perfect, able to bridle his body. James moves from talking about teachers to talking about what we say. About be careful about taming the tongue, right? He has all these things about, about what we say. I think he's talking about what teachers say. He's not just talking in general about be careful about our speech. That's a good lesson. Be careful about what you say. But he's talking about be careful what you say about God. Be careful what you say about faith. Be careful about what you teach. Verse 5, so also the tongue, though it's a small member, it boasts great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. Bad doctrine, bad teaching is like a, it's like a spark. In a very dry forest. My boys live out in Oregon, my older two boys, and all this summer, you know, it's almost unbearable. You can't even breathe. There's so much smoke in the air. Little fire, a little spark sets up these great blazes. But why would people teach erroneous doctrine? Why would they why would they teach things that are not true? And I think two reasons. First is ignorance, and the second is selfish ambition. People oftentimes teach false doctrine because they're simply unlearned. They just simply haven't understood the message of the Bible. They haven't simply understood the message of the Judeo-Christian religion. Um, they pick up the Bible and try to read it in the same way that they read, you know, a history textbook. They pick it up and try to read it as if it was written to them in English and written, you know, last month or something like that. It's not. It was written over a course of a thousand years in many different languages and throughout various different cultures. Um, when, when I was in, uh, in seminary, you had to take Greek and Hebrew. And a lot of my fellow seminarians complain about it as if it was a, a real burden to bear. You know, they didn't want to learn Greek and Hebrew. And the seminary listened to them. And because uh, schools of higher education have become like businesses and they're worried more about customers than about content, what they decided to do was add two different tracks, a concise language uh, format and a comprehensive. In the concise language, all you had to do was take one semester. Basically taught you the alphabet and how to use a computer. Um, comprehensive meant you had to use, do years of study. 
A lot of people were taking concise paths. I'm thinking, oh, this is ridiculous. You have to deal with this every day. Why not learn it and really learn it? I even heard recently that my Master Divinity degree was 96 semester hours, that they're going to shorten it to 76. They'll get a whole year cut off of it. And I'm sure it's for expediency's sake. But is that really what we need? We live in a, an age that is a great irony and contradiction. We have more information and less learning. We have so much more information than any generation and such a, 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 a dearth of, of actual learning. Second reason, I think, that people teach wrong doctrine is because of selfish ambition. This part is not in, this is later, verse 13 in the passage, so don't bother looking there. But here's what James goes on to say. Who is wise and understanding among you? This is what you want in a teacher, right? Somebody who's wise and has good understanding. By his good conduct, let him show his works in meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, do not boast uh, do not do not boast and be false to the truth. Selfish ambition. Now, there are people who actually use pulpit and lectern as a means of advancing their own life. Um, we've seen extreme examples, haven't we? Jonestown in, in South America when Jim Jones led this, the, the group of people to Guyana and they all commit some, this mass suicide, including little children. Why? Because he needed to be in control. He had used the Christian religion as a means of self-promotion. David Koresh in Waco, Texas, same sort of thing, ends in death. I could go on and on. There's no shortage of people who have used religion to, to advance their own, um, their own lives and their own careers, their own self-importance. But other people are more subtle in their teaching, more clandestine in their ambition. James says, be careful, teachers will be judged more strictly. And it's about now that probably you're thinking to yourself, <laughs> I am off the hook. First of all, because Joe, you're not even preaching to the choir. You're just preaching to yourself. You know, we're all off the hook and we're, we're enjoying watching you squirm up there. Well, hold on just one minute. We all teach. We do. We teach our children and our grandchildren. We teach our nieces and our nephews. We teach the people that are around us, our friends and our colleagues. Somebody values your opinion so much they listen to you. And if they listen to you and it changes the way they live and think, you have used influence upon them. And if you have used that influence for or against true religion, then you too are a teacher. Yes, it's true. Father Lawrence and I are going to be the first ones with a heavy microscope on us in this congregation. But don't think that you get to dodge it. Our words are powerful. The words that we say that inspire people to believe are powerful. And the words that we use to harm their faith are equally powerful. And James says, remember, you'll be judged by what you say. When I was a child in Sunday school, I don't remember much about it. I do remember these little songs that we used to sing in Sunday school. I don't know, maybe you went to a different Sunday school. There was this one, oh, be careful little eyes what you see. I'm not going to sing it for you because I want you to stay. Oh, be careful, little eyes, what you see. For the Father up above is looking down in love. Oh, be careful, little eyes, what you see. And there are other verses. Oh, be careful, little ears, what you hear. For the Father up above is looking down in love. Oh, be careful, little ears, what you hear. 
I think these, this is a good word, you know, that, that, that God is aware that we don't get away with sin. He knows what's being involved, right? And, and that he looks at us and judges us in love. Good lesson. Oh, be careful, little feet, where you go. The Father above is looking down in love. Oh, be careful, little feet, where you go. Oh, be careful, little mouth, what you say. For the Father up above is looking down in love. Oh, be careful, little mouth, what you say. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit.